Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Our German scholars say that if you're going to deal seriously with any passage from the Bible, you should determine as clearly as you can its Sitzimleben, its setting in life. Now, we know a fair amount about the setting of this particular passage of Scripture. We know it is addressed to a church in Philippi. We know where ancient Philippi lay. It was on that famous Roman road called the Via Ignatia, the Romans had built a magnificent road from Rome all the way to ancient Byzantium, later named Constantinople, today Istanbul. Centuries later, a railroad track would be laid along that same route and would carry a train known as the Orient Express. Philippi was named for Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. We know that a century before Paul arrived, there had been a tremendous battle fought on the plains of Macedon that the Roman leaders Brutus and Cassius had defeated the Greeks and that Philippi had become a Roman-dominated city. We know that 80 years before Paul arrived there in the year 50, Augustus Caesar had sent Roman families to help take control and make this city truly Roman. Archaeological evidence shows that there probably were only about 10,000 people living in Philippi, a little bigger than Oak Mulgee, but not so much. We know the predominance were Greeks, though there were a number of Roman families. There is no archaeological evidence that there were Jews living in Philippi at the time. So the people who had believed Paul's message were heathen and pagan who had come to a new faith in one God who had chosen to reveal himself in Jesus of Nazareth. When this letter is written, Paul tells us that he's a prisoner and goes on to say that he is being guarded by the praetorium. Now, the praetorium were Roman guards. There weren't many prisons in Paul's area of the world where actual Roman guards manned the prison. There was one at Ephesus. When Luke tells us about Paul's time at Ephesus in the book of Acts, he never mentions Paul's having been imprisoned there. If he were imprisoned there, then the letter probably got to Philippi about the year 53 or 54. It's more likely he was at Caesarea where Pontius Pilate had lived. There was certainly a Roman garrison there, and Luke does tell us that Paul was imprisoned there for two years. If so, then this letter would have been written and delivered to Philippi probably in the year 60. More scholars believe Paul has already made his way to Rome, that he is in confinement there by the Roman praetorium, and that both he and Peter are facing death shortly under the persecutions of Nero. If that be the case, then this letter was not written until 63 or 64. Delivered all the way from Rome to a group of people meeting in a house in a little town of about 10,000 people called Philippi. Let's take a look. First thing I underlined is the Lord is near. 
Dr. Fred Craddock said, there's little doubt that Paul is talking about the second coming of Jesus. That through his whole life, Paul held to the idea that Jesus was coming back. Surely, if not next week, next month, next year, he is coming. And that coming is near. But Dr. Gordon Free says, after 2,000 years, at least one thing we can say for sure, truly godly people long for the presence of God and truly godly people live in the presence of God. The Lord is near. Dr. Lauren Winner is a professor, Duke Divinity School, one of our own, of course. Dr. Winner has written about the passage of Scripture in the Gospels where the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says to a young woman who is engaged to be married that she is about to have a baby. And Mary begins to protest that she's not been with a man. It's interesting to read commentary written by women scholars. They look at these passages quite differently from the way men would look at them. She said, I can only imagine if I were a young woman engaged, not yet married, not yet sexually active with the man I'm going to marry, and I hear a voice from God saying to me, you're going to be a mother, I would say, excuse me. If you really want God to come near, she says, be prepared for an interruption in your life. When God comes, there's an interruption and can there be a bigger one she said than a baby we have a new baby in our extended family my sister brother-in-law's younger son his wife had a new baby just a few days before thanksgiving their first these two young people went to texas a&m university were both graduated he eventually became a pharmaceutical rep for johnson and johnson uh, she was an educator Moved through the classroom, then became an assistant elementary principal in Houston. They were doing very well at 28 for him, 27 for her. They got married six years ago. They continued to work, looking forward to the day when they would become parents. Late last winter, she got pregnant, and lo and behold, Johnson & Johnson transferred them to Jacksonville, Florida. And so this new baby was born just before Thanksgiving in Jacksonville, Florida. And all we know is what we've gotten on email since that time, but I can tell you their lives have been interrupted. <laughs> Neither of them has had a baby in the house for 33, 34 years when they were that baby. And they're saying they've had no sleep for three weeks. Their lives have been Interrupted. Dr. Lauren Winter says, I remember a late afternoon when I needed desperately to be reading and writing and reading and writing and reading and writing and there was a knock at my door at Duke Divinity School. I did not want to be interrupted. But the knocking was so persistent, I opened the door and saw one of my young female students. I told her to come in. But what she told me and how I responded to what she told me would change this young woman's life forever and it would change mine too. Oh, by the way, she wrote, did I tell you that her name was Gabriella? So when Gabriel or Gabriella arrives in your life, it will interrupt. You sure you want God to come close to you? Number two, I underline, do not worry about anything. 
Do not worry. Be happy. Jesus said it a little differently. You know about sparrows. The cheapest protein sold in the markets of His day. I tell you, not one sparrow falls to the ground, but that my Father knows and cares. Are you not of much more value than one of those? Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Eugene Peterson translates, Do not fret. Do not fret. The Lord knows your need. Clint Eastwood has a new movie out called Gran Torino. At the 8.30 service, I looked at our chapel choir and I said, you remember? No, you don't remember Gran Torino's. No, you don't remember Gran Torino's. Ford made the Gran Torino. What does this Ford automobile have to do with this new movie Clint Eastwood has made? Well, Clint Eastwood is playing a fellow named Walt Kowalski. You know Clint's almost 80 years old himself and he's playing an old man who's alone. His wife has died. His neighborhood is changing and older people don't like change. So he sits on his front porch and he curses all these folks who are moving into his neighborhood. He is not politically correct. He is politically incorrect about everyone and everything. He was a veteran in Korea, the Korean War. When he got home from that war, he became an assembly line worker at Ford. In fact... He had been there for years when in 1972, Ford produced the Gran Torino, a fastback. Walt Kowalski fell in love with his 1972 Gran Torino. He was the steering column assemblyman. And when he put this one in, he was extra careful because he intended to buy that one. And he had bought it. And all these years, he had washed it and waxed it and polished it and babied it. And it is about the only thing he had left in his life now, that Gran Torino parked in the garage. Asians, he didn't care much for Asians. He fought Asians in Korea. And an Asian family moves right next door. And he curses and he rants and he raves. And one night, the young man next door tries to steal the Gran Torino. And the movie's about what happens after that. But the Wall Street Journal reviewer, Joel Morgenstern, said, let me remind you before you go to see this movie that this is not the young Clint Eastwood who made a fistful of dollars. This is not the young Clint Eastwood who was Dirty Harry. This is the older Clint Eastwood who makes movies like Unforgiven, who went to time, energy, and lots of money to make two movies about Iwo Jima, one of those from the American's perspective and another whole movie based on letters and cards from Japanese young men who knew they were going to die on that island. This is an older Clint Eastwood who knows that violence always has repercussions, that violence begets violence, and that somehow we've got to learn to live together to appreciate the other, whether the other is right next door or on the opposite side of the world. Brothers and sisters, nonetheless. Don't worry. Number three. The third important thing here, Dr. Fred Craddock is a big help. It talks about the peace of God. In Greek, of course, this word for peace is erene. 
But Dr. Craddock reminds us that Paul's thought process, you see, from all of his early upbringing and training would have been Hebrew. Hebrew, and that word is shalom. The shalom of God, which means not just absence of hostility or war, but literally means well-being. War is not good, so it does mean peace. But it means very concrete things as well. If, if you're hungry, God wants you to have food. If you're thirsty, God wants you to have something to drink. If it's going to be cold tomorrow, God wants you to have a heater. If it's hot August, God wants you to have an air conditioner. God wants good to come to you. And then it says, but this shalom of God stands guard. And here again, this is a military term. In classical Greek writing, it's always a term used about soldiers, about military usually young men who are standing guard over somebody who is important or some property that's very important or some line of demarcation in battle, someone who's supposed to be alert to anything and everything going on. The shalom of God keeps watch over you. The shalom of God stands sentry over you? Dr. John Buchanan, 4th Presbyterian Church in Chicago, was one of our Barton Clinton Gordy presenters. Some of you will remember him well. Uh, he's editor of uh, Christian Century Magazine, along with being pastor of that great church. He recently wrote that he had seen a survey. Which Christmas carol are you most tired of at this point? And the winner was The Little Drummer Boy. Uh, more people said, I'm sick of the little drummer boy. I don't want to hear any more about the little drummer boy. And then, then, Dr. Buchanan writes, can you really put yourself into this little song? Can you see baby Jesus in a stable when some little street urchin walks in and starts beating on a drum? He said, I envision... Baby Jesus, you can't focus his eyes yet, but they pop open when this kid is beating a drum right next to him. I can imagine Almighty God saying, Stop it! Until God would think, Wait a second, this is the sort of thing mortals do. This is the way mortals act. And I've decided I love them so much, I want them to have a new and better way of seeing. I want Gentiles to be brought into this community of faith. So if it means drumming, then bring on the drummer. And then Dr. Buchanan says, but get to the end of the hymn, this carol, and hear the little drummer boy say, I played my best for him, and he smiled at me. The shalom of God expects your and my best, and when we give it, then God smiles. God is pleased. God takes pleasure in what we have done. Number four. Now let's go to the first verse. You see, when I read a passage, it doesn't always fall in the same logical movement to me. And this time I thought that 
that the lower part of the reading should come before the upper part. The upper part is that part about rejoice. Rejoice. And again, I say to you, rejoice. Dr. Morna Hooker reminds us that in this brief letter, a letter of Paul from prison, uh, when he knows that it, if the Caesar wakes up one morning not feeling good, he can just say, kill everybody in the prison. If a lesser officer doesn't really care for this prisoner from Tarsus, and kill him, get rid of him, it happens. And yet, these powerful words just in four little chapters, he uses the word for joy, a noun, or to be joyful, a verb, 14 times. This word rejoice is that word, the verb form. Make for joy. Make with joy. Be joyful. Um, Charles Wesley captured this verse, I think, in the great hymn he wrote. Rejoice, the Lord is King. You are Lord and King. Adore. In another verse he says, Rejoice, the Lord shall come. Receive your judge, he says. And yet he's convinced that this judge who comes will be our Lord Jesus Christ. And every chorus of every verse reaffirms, Rejoice again, I say to you, rejoice. Be joyful. Dr. Gordon Free says, this is an imperative verb. This isn't something we can do or not do. If you are a follower of Christ, this is an imperative verb. You shall be joyful. You shall make a joyful noise. You shall rejoice if you are a follower of Christ. Not an option. As surely as agape, this word for love, is not about a feeling, it's a conscious decision of the mind to put oneself out for the well-being of another. So this word rejoice is, how are you feeling? What kind of mood are you in? This is a little thing of mine. I see people and I say, are you in a good mood? Are you in a good mood? I'd be amazed what kind of answers I get sometimes. <laughs> you in a good mood? Well, this word is not about a mood. It's not about a mood. Paul is saying, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what circumstantia, what's around you at any given moment, I tell you, rejoice. No joy in your life because you are growing by the grace of God in your relationship with God through Christ and you are growing in a right relationship with the other children of God. Surely you are, folks in Philippi. So rejoice. One day this week, I was checking my emails at noontime and one of the past presidents of our downtown Rotary Club had sent me an email. Uh, he's not a member of this church, but I'm a past president of that club. My year was way back there, 85, 86. Uh, but the past presidents have a, a dinner together twice a year and I've come to know this fellow quite well over the years. Anyway, he'd sent me an email and I looked carefully to see who originally wrote this thing, and he didn't have it. It wasn't there. So, I don't know where it came from, except 
it came from Doug to me. Uh, an older fellow, a man in his 80s, is described, walked into a doctor's office early one morning, walked up to the receptionist's desk and said, I'm here to get the stitches taken out of my thumb and I need to see a doctor as soon as possible. I have an important engagement at 9 o'clock. A nurse was standing there looking over the shoulder of the receptionist and she heard what he said, so she went back into the hallway and could tell that the doctor was really involved with a rather difficult procedure and was going to be tied up for a little while. So she whispered to the doctor, uh, Mr. Whatever is here to have the stitches taken out of his thumb. Uh, do you want me to tend to that? He says he has a really important appointment at 9 o'clock. And he said, Sure, just be sure it looks good and healthy, color good and so on, and then take out the stitches if, the, if his thumb looks good. So she told the man, come on back. And when she got him in the examining room, took the bandage off, color was good, everything looked, looked like it was healing exactly as ought. So with a little pair of snips and, and tweezers, she was pulling, pulling out these stitches. And she said to him, so you've got an important engagement at 9 o'clock. And he said, yes, I need to be at the nursing home to feed my wife. And the nurse said, oh, and she gets upset if you're not there. And he said, no, she doesn't even know who I am. But I know who she is. And I don't want to be late. And then this nurse said, you see, the happiest people are not those who have all the best things happening to them. It's those who've learned to make the best of whatever is happening to them. It's not about avoiding all the storms of life. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Amen.